You're listening to episode 22 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Brendan Hall and Thomas Costelli here today to speak all about 1031 Exchanges with 1031 Exchange expert, William Exeter, who goes by Bill for short. Bill has been in the 1031 Exchange industry since its infancy in the 1980s, having served as senior executive for two 1031 Exchange companies until later founding his own. Bill puts out a ton of great 1031 content, which you can check out on Exeter1031.com as well as Bigger Pockets. Before we jump right into today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes as each review helps us spread the word and get this content out to more people and ultimately help more real estate investors. Also want to remind everybody that we're in Q4 of 2018 and this is the perfect time to speak to your tax advisors about implementing any last minute tax strategies to help reduce your tax liability for 2018. And without further ado, let's get right into the show. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Would you be able to give us a quick overview of your background, how you got started in the 1031 exchange industry and uh, how you got to this point today? Sure. Uh, well, I was actually controller of a, a small commercial bank up in Los Angeles, and the chairman of the board decided to start an exchange company. And outside counsel said, do not have the escrow subsidiary run it. And he gave it to me, and I had no idea what that was. <laughs> and that was back in the early 1980s. And uh, coincidentally, about two and a half months later, uh, UCLA had a, a couple-day uh, special course on 1031 exchanges. And I left the banking world as I was about 35 years ago. Got into Kevin exchanges and processes and been doing that ever since. So my background is really uh, 1031 exchanges and various trust and fiduciary services like uh, self-directed IRAs and land trusts and whatnot. Awesome. Awesome. So today, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have your own group of companies and you you run 1031 exchange practice uh, that you help uh, various people. For the people who don't already know what a 1031 exchange is, could you give a quick overview of what a 1031 exchange is? Sure. Uh, so the 1031 allows an investor to sell their real estate that is held for rental investment or business use and defer the payment of their capital gain taxes and their depreciation recapture taxes as long as they reinvest in other uh, replacement properties. So uh, probably a, a perfect example is somebody buys a single-family house, and maybe they rent it right away, maybe they live in it, and later move out and convert it to rental. And maybe five years later, they're, they really like the real estate business, and they decide they would like to get into a duplex or a fourplex or what have you. And of course, the next step is they meet with their accountant and get that wonderful surprise in terms of how much tax they're going to pay. And that's where they have the OMG moment. <laughs> and then that's when they find out about the 1031 exchange, where they can sell their single family, do the 1031 exchange, defer all those taxes by acquiring that replacement property. So it really keeps all the money in their pocket, keeps it working for them, building their net worth, and allows them to you know, reposition their real estate portfolio without getting hit with the federal and state uh, taxes. Thanks, Bill. And what are some of the timelines related 
to the 1031 exchanges that investors should be aware of. Those are the tough part about the 1031 exchange. You know, when the sale of your current property occurs, that starts your deadlines. And the first one is your 45 calendar day identification period. So the investor has exactly 45 calendar days to identify what they're going to acquire. Uh, that 45-day period moves really quickly. So that's the tough part. Uh, the close of the sale also triggers their 180-day uh, exchange period. So they have a total of 180 days to actually complete the 1031 exchange. So it's not 45 plus 180. It's actually 45 days to identify an additional 135 days to complete the 1031 exchange for a total period of 180 calendar days. And so, you know, the, these timing requirements can be pretty hard to adhere to. Do you have any tips on how to make sure that your 1031 exchange goes smoothly and you meet those timing requirements? Yes, and you're absolutely right, especially in the market we have today with, you know, low inventory and you're seeing, you're still seeing, you know, multiple offers and bidding wars and the risk is what happens if you sell your property, close on the sale, and then you can't find property. And that would result in a failed 1031 exchange, and then it becomes taxable. So there's a, a number of ways you can kind of plan for that. It's all about planning. Get your team together, get your everything lined up, ready to go. On the sales side, if you get a buyer, see if they're willing to cooperate. If they can delay the close, if they can agree to an extended closing period, if they can agree to you know, a number of 30-day extensions, that gives the seller time to kind of find the right replacement property and put all the pieces together. Another option would be to go out and look for replacement property. And if you find the property you want, uh, find a way to tie that up. You know, Can you uh, get the seller on that side to agree to a, a long-term close or 30-day options to extend? Or maybe they can put it under a lease with an option to buy. Uh, if there's some way to tie up that property so you can control when you can close on the purchase, that eliminates a lot of your risk. The third option could be considering a reverse 1031 exchange where you actually buy and close on your purchase first, and then you have 180 days to sell your current property. Uh, that's probably a, a better strategy because you close the sellers out of the picture. The problem is it's more complicated, uh, more expensive. And of course, everybody's equity is still trapped in their property they haven't sold yet. So uh, you got to figure out how do you pay for the new property first if you're going to do a reverse 1031 exchange. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, many of our clients, uh, at least the ones that have successfully gone through 1031 exchanges, do exactly what you were saying in option number one and two, where they have some sort of overlap with tying up the replacement property before they even liquidate the property that they're, they're uh, trying to sell. And we've had a couple of clients do reverse 1031 exchanges in the past, and uh, they are they are a lot more costly. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, in fact, I should probably back up and kind of give an overview. So typically regular or what we call forward 1031 exchanges where you're selling first, buying second, the, the fees generally on the West Coast are probably in the $750 to maybe $1,200 range. Uh, we're at $899, and that should include the first sale and the first purchase, and then additional properties would be extra. If you go to the East Coast, you might see as high as $2,500. There's less competition, et cetera. Now, when you get into reverse 1031 exchanges, generally you're going to see pricing in the probably six dollars to $9,000 range. 
Um, if it's way under six thousand dollars, I'd be very careful. Uh, the, the company's probably taking shortcuts. Uh, they don't understand the risks. Every now and then, we see somebody who's really low, and that scares the heck out of me. Six to nine thousand covers, for the most part, our risk. We're taking and holding legal title to the property. It's what the IRS calls parking title, and that puts a lot of risk on us. Uh, there's also a lot more work, a lot more documentation, a lot more consulting, but the biggest issue is our risk. And then we also set up an LLC for every single 1031 exchange that we do in the reverse structure. And it's a brand new LLC for every single client. We never reuse the LLC again. And so that's part of the cost as well. And the LLC protects the client from any liens or judgments, et cetera, from our, our other clients. And it also protects us with a little layer of protection there in case uh, the property has some kind of litigation or other type of uh, uh, risk involved. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, you mentioned that you set up a little fees and all that stuff. Now, um, I know that one of the, the general rules with 1031 exchanges is that the taxpayer relinquishing the property must remain the same as the taxpayer purchasing the property. There's also some confusion on whether or not a single-member LLC, because it's disregarded for federal tax purposes, if you can throw a single-member LLC on that back end of purchasing that replacement property. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you guys work with that at all, or do you just generally avoid it? We, we do. It happens quite a bit. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It has to be considered the same taxpayer, not necessarily the same legal entity, but the same taxpayer, both on the relinquished side and on the replacement side. So generally, if you're an individual, you know, you sell your relinquished property, you buy your replacement property in your individual name, and it's a nice, clean exchange. Uh, probably the best example, though, is you sell your current property uh, as an individual, and you go to buy your replacement property, and the lender says, wait a minute, because of the property you're buying, maybe it's a multifamily property, we're going to require that you put it into a limited liability company. Well, now you're selling as an individual you're buying as an LLC, does that qualify? Well, as long as the LLC is a single-member LLC and is considered a disregarded entity, and that's the key, and the sole member is the same individual that sold the property, that absolutely qualifies. But the key is it's got to be the same tax, the same person on both sides. That LLC has to be a disregarded entity. A lot of people focus on that single-member issue, but a single-member may not be a disregarded entity. So it's really the disregarded status that counts. Other examples would be uh, your living trust is typically fully revocable. So that would be a disregarded entity. Most land trusts, a beneficial interest in a land trust, uh, a beneficial interest in a, a Delaware statutory trust, those are also disregarded entities and would count for 1031 exchange purposes. Interesting. Interesting. So one of the things that um, happened with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is they changed the definition of real property, I mean, excuse me, of 1031 exchanges to only include real property instead of, um, it used to include tangible personal property. So how does that affect real estate investors, specifically those who use cost segregation studies? Good question. Uh, you know, those who have done cost segregation studies, they have uh, acquired a property, they've chosen to, to go through the study process, and that study then allocates, or, or um, I guess allocates is the right word, or bifurcates the property into various component parts. So they'll take certain parts of the real estate and carve that out, 
and so that, well, not so, but so they can depreciate it faster effectively. So whether if it's a commercial office building and you generally see this like in medical, hospitality, things like that, uh, where they'll carve out things that are different buildings so they can depreciate it over a five, seven, 15 year period. Um, but now we have the situation where we have a 1031 exchange that only qualifies if it's real estate. So if we have chosen to buy real estate, we've chosen to segregate some of that items or some of those assets as personal property so we can depreciate it faster. Now, what do we do on the sales side? What are we selling? Uh, and there's a bunch of arguments out there. I mean, some of the attorneys will argue that, well, under state law, all of that, including the personal property, is still defined as real estate. Others will argue that, well, but you have chosen or elected to carve it out as personal property. So when you sell, our opinion is you've carved it out as personal property. That no longer counts or qualifies as part of a 1031 exchange. So they're probably going to recognize a taxable event to the extent that they've carved that out and treated that as personal property on their tax return. Yeah, it's very interesting because you know a lot of people who are continually asking about uh, you know whether or not they're going to be able to still use 1031 exchanges with cost segregation studies often have this question, and it's it's interesting to see you know hear your opinion on that and how that's going to affect people going forward. So the question now becomes: Is is the cost segregation 1031 combo still a viable combo? And it sounds like it it could still be in some cases, but it might not be as always. Absolutely, and I, and I think when clients ask us that point directly, it's like, well, if you look at what the code says, personal property no longer qualifies. To be on the conservative side, we just say it doesn't. That's it, possible; it might be permitted, but until we get further guidance from the IRS or any kind of rulings, we don't know for sure. And and I've seen white papers from attorneys argue it both ways. So. I don't think anybody knows for sure whether it's going to work or not. And I'm hoping by the end of this year, more likely next year, we'll get some guidance on that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're hoping to see the same thing. Hopefully, we'll get some IRS or Treasury guidance uh, on that. And we'll be able to end the debate at some point. Absolutely. When it comes to uh, to, more, to boot, uh, a lot of our clients often ask us questions regarding mortgage boot and uh, the need to replace the previous mortgage they got, the relinquished mortgage, with either a new mortgage or add cash into the transaction. Could you speak on that and and why that needs to happen? In fact, there's a lot of misinformation out there on that topic. Uh, You can read some websites and you know, I don't think they're misleading on purpose. They just, they're confused in the way they describe that. And so the fact that you brought up the, the, you could replace debt with cash is a perfect comment because you don't have to replace your mortgage or your, your debt on the property. You can put out of pocket cash in to replace that. But so let me use kind of an example. You know, a lot of people try to uh, guide taxpayers by saying, all you have to do is reinvest your cash and reinvest or replace your debt and you're good to go. And that's a little misleading because there, there could be things paid through close might skew those numbers. Uh, what I just described is kind of a bottom-up approach. Start with your equity and your debt. But what about the top level? So we approach it from the top down. What's your gross sales price? What are permissible selling expenses? Brokers, commission, title, escrow, et cetera. And that gets you your net sales price. That's the number they have to reinvest. Then the question is, how much cash do they do All that or have? All the cash has to get transferred over into the acquisition. They have to reinvest all their cash. And the next issue is, okay, you figured out what your purchase price is. It's got to be equal or greater than what your net sale price was. 
You've reinvested all your cash. The difference is either going to be new out-of-pocket cash or that you're going to get a new loan on the replacement property to make up the difference. And if you start with that top-down approach, that will make up for any of the issues uh, that happen in closing. Definitely a simpler way to look at it, I think. So that's very good. We appreciate that. How do you think that 1031 exchanges are going to compare to like investing in opportunity funds? So you know, opportunity funds have that same 180-day requirement, but you only have to invest the capital gain proceeds. Are you seeing investors like kind of start asking about opportunity funds over 1031 exchanges, or do you think that that's just a completely different animal? No, I think there's some crossover there. I, I think it's a limited crossover because if they don't make the investment in a relatively short, near future, short term, uh, they're going to lose the full tax-free aspect of the opportunity zone. So it kind of depends. It's a very short window. Uh, it's also in an opportunity zone is obviously areas that have been designated where they're trying to stimulate the economy. So it may or may not have any really good quality properties there. So it really depends on the investor and what they're looking to do. Uh, we've had certainly had the question raised, but most of the clients we haven't seen actually decide to go the opportunity zone way. So I think there'll be a little bit of a overlap there, but I don't think it's going to have a major impact on the 1031 exchange business. Yeah. One other major item there to consider is that if you invest in that opportunity fund, you're no longer in control of the business, right? So if you're doing a 1031 exchange, you control that replacement property. You get to make all the decisions. If you invest in an opportunity fund, that's no longer the case. You're, you're giving your money over to general partners. But, but both, both vehicles, obviously, a 1031 exchange and an opportunity fund, offer amazing tax incentives. So uh, there's definitely a right time and a wrong time to use each. Speaking of like wrong times, are, are there any misconceptions or misunderstandings around 1031 exchanges that you often see? And Can you give us an example of a downside or, or downsides to look out for with the 1031 exchange? Sure. Yeah, probably the most common uh, misconception, if you will, is that they only have to reinvest their equity or their gain or profit. Uh, they don't realize they have to recognize or reinvest the entire amount. So let's say the investor owns a property worth a million. You subtract your routine selling expenses. You've got a net sale price of 950000 That's the magic number. That's what they have to reinvest. And they often look at it and say, well, I've got a two dollars or $300,000 gain. And they think they only have to reinvest the gain. It's actually the full nine fifty. dollars So the government's really taken the position, you own this asset that's worth nine fifty dollars net. And that's what you have to reinvest. And as long as you stay fully invested at that level, they let you defer all the tax. So that's probably the biggest uh, misconception we see quite a bit. In terms of when you should or should not use the 1031 exchange, you know, a lot of clients just kind of go forward and do it. And then later they talk to their accountant and find out that maybe they shouldn't have done one. Uh, it depends on their situation, as you know. So what we see quite a bit is people would just uh, go and do the exchange and then they find out they have had some other type of loss carry forward or credits or something that may have offset part or all of the gain and they didn't have to do the 1031 exchange. Or, you know, when you're in economic downturns, you see a lot of people who actually have a loss on the sale of the property and they still do an exchange instead of selling it without the exchange and just recognizing the loss. So there's scenarios like that where they probably shouldn't do an exchange, but it depends. And, and obviously, the first rule of thumb is visit with your accountant first, know what the tax liability <laughs> is before you proceed. Almost nobody does that, and then they have uh, surprises. So it's 
it's well worth you know spending an hour or two with your tax advisors first. Figure out what you've got, what you're looking at before you proceed. I'm so glad that you brought up that long thing because I completely uh, forgot about bringing that topic up. But we have helped so many clients in just recognizing that they don't need to do a 1031 exchange because their suspended passive losses are so large that they completely offset the gain in depreciation recapture if you were to just completely liquidate the property. So for anybody listening, if you're thinking about doing a 1031 exchange and you're wondering what your suspended passive losses look like, Pull up your prior year tax returns and navigate to form 8582. That will show you the current year activity, like what was added to your suspended passive losses. It should also come with six worksheets, form 8582 worksheets that you can gain more information on what losses are being carried forward and suspended. Uh, but that will kind of give you some insight into how much in terms of passive losses you have to carry forward and offset any form of gain. So really appreciate you bringing that, that up, Bill. Absolutely. I was, I was going to say, too, we're coming up on year-end, and so there's some year-end planning opportunities with exchanges as well, and there's there's also what we call a partial exchange, and that kind of falls in the same line of, of discussion there. There's a lot of information on the internet which says you have to trade equal or up in value. Well, that's assuming that you want to defer all your tax. You don't have to. You could do a partial exchange and trade down in value, if you do that, you're going to pay some tax, but there's a lot of strategic reasons that you might want to do that. Um, it's the old adage that if you own real estate, you're probably real estate rich and cash poor. So sometimes you sell for a million, you reinvest for eight hundred or nine hundred thousand, and you pay tax on the difference, but you've created some cash liquidity for yourself. So partial exchanges are okay. And as we get into year-end, there's a lot of year-end planning opportunities with 1031 exchanges. So if you sell this year and, and your exchange fails, it can still push your capital gain liability into next year. So it can defer it for at least a year. So, th- so there's a lot of uh, tax planning strategies available at the end of the year closing transactions, which is also why it's good to go visit your accountant first to find out what might happen and what your options are. Excellent thoughts. Absolutely love it. Bill, what is your favorite piece of technology that you're using these days? Phew. I wish I had technology that didn't keep changing. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I turn around, something's changed again. You know, I love uh, actually all of it because we now are paperless. Uh, so we've saved a lot of trees and we can work from wherever we might be. So we're always attending trade shows and conferences and on the road meeting with clients and what have you. So. It, just the fact that we can, you know, meet with clients and do the work on the road is fantastic. So we really use quite a bit of it. What do you guys use for like document storage and management? Uh, we're converting over actually right now to Box.com, and we use that for just about everything. It's got a lot more security and, and levels of control than what we've been using in the past. So that's really the best way for us to collaborate uh, with between all of our offices throughout the country on the road. Awesome. Awesome. Glad to hear uh, security is a priority. It, um, you know, These days, all the data breaches definitely want to keep everything secure. So, Bill, if one of our listeners wanted to contact you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you or your company? Sure. They can go to our website or they can call us direct, whatever they prefer. Um, website address is exeter1031.com. So that's E-X-E-T-E-R 1031.com. Or they can just call us direct. It's uh, area code 
3091. And uh, we're always available 24 7 to answer questions. Perfect. Perfect. So, far, listeners, we're going to go ahead and drop that URL into the show notes for you to uh, get in touch with Bill and his team should you want to utilize 1031 Exchange. And uh, we're just going to wrap up here. Bill, it was a pleasure having you come on the show today. I want to thank you again for coming on. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.